0: I'm your host, Nick Dyson, Scientific Director at the Mass General Cancer Center, and this is episode 48. Uh, Today we have Shannon Stott and Brian Nahed with me again, and uh, they're going to describe for us the the background for the paper that they published earlier this year in Nature Communications, describing a device uh, and the use of that device to isolate these exosomes from uh, the blood of patients with gliomas. So first of all, thank you again, both of you, for, for joining us. And first, can you give me the background to what it was that you were trying to do?
1: Sure, I'll start. Um, I think, as we were talking about before, when we were thinking about developing a blood test for brain cancers, we were very focused on looking at these rare cell types, these circulating tumor cells, and what they can tell us about the patient. But if you also take a step back, you have this very complex, rich sample from a, from a human that has so many other components. So you have these rare cells, but as we're learning more about what components are released from the tumor, there are also these tiny vesicles that are being released from mm-hmm. cancer cells and from the primary tumor. And as a technologist, going after rare cells, it's a big challenge. So you're looking at one in a billion, and it's something that can keep me up at night as to how can we do that better with greater purity 30. But then, when I started learning about these vesicles, mm-hmm. one cancer cell will release up to ten thousand of these vesicles a day.
0: Right. So, but this isn't just a unique property of cancer cells, right? Correct. Th- this is part of normal biology.
1: Yes, I think of them as like little postcards that cells send out as a form of cell-cell communication. So all of the cells in your body will release off these little tiny particles. They're a nanometer scale size that contain RNA, proteins, and cytokines, and it's a way for them to share messages across Mm -hmm. to other cells. Mm And cancer cells do this, and the number of vesicles in cancer patients is known to be higher. And I think specific to brain cancer, it's attractive because they're so small, the thought is that they may be able to cross the blood-brain barrier Uh, a bit more readily than the larger cancer cells. Yes. And so since they would already be in the same fluid that we're analyzing for the circulating tumor cells, why should we not probe deeper into the samples that we're getting? And so that was the, idea behind developing a microfluidic technology that would pull out these tumor-specific vesicles.
0: Yes. Now tell us why you felt that uh, you wanted to try microfluidic technology, because there were technologies already existing (laughs) for purifying these exosomes out of blood.
1: Yes, correct. So Traditionally, most folks have been using ultracentrifugation. So it's just a really big centrifuge, and you put a lot of force so that these really small particles fall down to the bottom. But yes. because all cells are releasing these vesicles, the amount of tumor-specific vesicles will be about 1%. So it's, right. it's really going to be lost in the noise yes. when you're trying to pull data from it. And so the, the motivation for this technology is if we can use microfluidics, We can manipulate all of those small particles in a particular way so that we only pull out the ones that are from the tumor.
0: Right. And the key here is the technology that you developed for purifying circulating tumor cells was based on coating the surface with antibodies so that they would recognize a specific cell type. And and basically you were transferring the same technology of using antibodies to capture now to isolate the specific vesicles. Yes,
1: indeed. And and I think recycling is very popular right now. (laughs) We had this microfluidic technology that we had. It was one of the earlier generations for CTC isolation. And because we had already scaled it up and it was made in plastic and it would be something that would allow us to test more patients in a cost-effective way, I think we approached this problem thinking, oh, we'll just use this but make it specific to the vesicles and Mm -hmm. pull those out. And so I think that was a a naive assumption that we had that these very small vesicles that are one- twenty thousandth of a size of a whole cell would behave in the same way biophysically in the same technology. And then the surprise that we we had was actually they don't behave in the same way. The biophysics are very different Uh and so that we have to get clever in how we present those antibodies and manipulate the fluid inside the device so that we can reach the goal that we had of getting the enrichment of the the brain-specific vesicles.
0: I see, I see. So having decided that this is what you were going to do, What was, where did you start? What was the first thing that you tackled?
1: I think the first thing was trying to, because we were going after the the brain-specific vesicles, was pulling on our work that we had done in CTC research. Mm -hmm. So from what Brian had started, what would be the surface antigens that would be present on gliomas? And by surface antigens, just kind of the the signatures or proteins that would be there that we could target. And so looking at that, screening through databases of patient tumors and trying to find the markers that would allow us just to pull that out. So that was one of those. So this is going back
0: to Brian, to your work from the original RNA seq analysis was mm-hmm. it, of the circulating tumor cells.
2: Yeah, I mean, we Shannon was alluding to the the, the fact that it, the ability to capture not only the cells but any information through blood mm-hmm. is is just so attractive, particularly in something like brain cancer because you know the skull makes it hard to to access yes and increasingly it's not enough to just document or or identify or diagnose somebody at one time point and then give them all hosts of therapies and assume it's going to be the same yes and so this was a very very elegant way to to not only um right try to capture that information but also look forward to the future where we can find and track and monitor a lot of these changes and maybe identify new
0: ones. Yes. So you pulled out antibodies to how many proteins, was it about 10 proteins that you tested as your candidates?
1: Yes, so there were about 10 and we've ended up with four that were the most effective uh, to pull out across. Patients, because there'll be a lot of differences across, you know, as much as they're all glioblastomas, they still have their own unique fingerprints. And so we found that these four antibodies um, would be the best to yes. pull out the most vesicles.
0: Yes. And, and you've been using this then as the cocktail to specifically enrich for glioma produced vesicles? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So uh, the first thing then was to identify the antibodies you were going to use. Mm-hmm. So what came next?
1: Was to test it out, so (laughs) we first tested it with some glioblastoma cell lines, which is what the technology was initially developed for. And we, you know, it worked terrifically with the the tumor cells, where we had ninety five percent capture with our four antibodies. And then patting ourselves on the back that we were so great. And then we took those same cells, but took these tiny vesicles Uh that those cells were putting out into just the environment. And then when we flowed those through the chip, we only had 10% capture of the vesicles.
0: But 10% still sounds very good.
1: (laughs) It's not good from an engineering perspective. That's a total failure. Back to prototyping.
0: (laughs) It wasn't zero.
1: (laughs) It's true, but um, we knew, I think, just from from all of our history of manipulating, you know, biological fluids, that we could definitely do better. And so um, we started thinking about what could be some of the issues. And one of the issues we knew is that rather than pulling out rare cells, we were pulling out millions to billions of these vesicles. So we were also saturating the surface. yes. Of our device because yes. we could see it was completely full and so we had to increase the surface area but we still wanted to recycle that plastic chip because uh-huh. that was a major cost savings so we put nanoparticles across the whole surface of the chip so that it increased
0: the okay. surface area so so uh, to admit my ignorance what is a nanoparticle
1: so it's it's literally just a small bead <laughs> that's in so, your skin. It's just a fancy
0: name for a small bead. <laughs> it's a very small bead, yes. And so yeah. if you
1: think about it, you know, the surface of a sphere yeah. or that bead is going to be much greater than yeah. that same space that's occupied by a flat surface so so we added all of these small teeny tiny little beads that are
0: a bit like the surface of a raspberry yes
1: yes exactly that's the perfect analogy and that was the first thing that we did and that helped elevate us a little bit higher Hmm. and then the next thing as we were thinking more about what was going on from a biophysical perspective is that these very small particles the biophysics as they were going through the device they weren't actually making it to the surface they they didn't have enough force as they were getting kind of twisting and turning, Ah, that the steric hindrance would be the technical term that we would use, was repelling them from the surface. And so rather than forcing them down, and potentially damaging them, we wanted to bring the antibodies up Ah. and away from the surface that was repelling them.
0: And that was why you put in the linkers of different lengths to try and get the antibody away from the surface.
1: Exactly. And so then we tried probably 40 different combinations of linker lengths and then a forest of different sizes. Linker lengths, yes. and maybe if it travels through the forest versus over the forest, what would be the most beneficial way? Yes, and then all of the data starts to very clearly tell us there is one sweet spot of this is how long and big your antibody should be, and and then we, we went with it, and then we were up to where we wanted to be with capture efficiency.
0: So. I, there's, uh, I noticed in your paper there's a point where you wanted to see what the capacity of your device was and that you discovered it actually wasn't pulling out most of the exosomes mm-hmm. and that you hooked them up then in series and, and you passed it through one and then the next and then the next <laughs> and it ended up that it was at least four. Yes, yeah.
1: yes. Well, and I think one of the, the challenges that still exists is we don't know how many exosomes are in the blood of patients because yes. there hadn't been a technology that was really good at pulling out just the tumor specific right. exosomes. And so in our model systems we were recognizing that if we if we work with what is presumed yes. to be the concentration there were just so many we needed to run yes. you know in engineering yeah. we'd call it a daisy chain. So uh-huh. we have these series and the chips are $2 a chip. So it was very easy for us just to put I didn't one at- realize
0: they were that cheap. Yes,
1: and so, so this way, and if we were making them ourselves yes. and, and changing the design, it would be more yeah. expensive. Yeah. But so this way, we were able to make sure we weren't missing anything. Right. Right. Um, but that, that leads to where we'd like to go next with the technology.
0: Yes. The, the experimental system you were using seemed very clever because you were taking a cell line that had a, um, an RFP or a GFP, a color tag, a fluorescent <laughs> tag, and so you had the vesicles uh, being produced by those cells that were kind of color coded. Yes. And then um, y- you have some uh, lovely images in the paper where you look, you show the uh, vesicles actually captured on the slide. Um, but it, it was a great way to figure out whether it was efficient or not.
1: Yes. Yeah. So my father was an efficiency expert at IBM. And so I think (laughs) growing up and (laughs) throughout life, it's what is the fastest way to get done what you need to get done in a good way. And I think um, just seeing is believing um, for just quick modifications. And as much as I love doing rna and and nucleic acid analysis it's not fast i don't get an answer within five minutes of running an experiment (laughs) so by having this visual color-coded mechanism to see were we successful with this perturbation that we did it was very enabling that we could run look And then say, okay, because we weren't looking for a 10% change in output. We were looking for things that made that big order of magnitude change. And so having that fluorescence dye. And so Xandra Brakefield's lab had developed that strategy. And Xandra's at Mass General and a pioneer in exosome research. Uh, And so she was a strong collaborator on this work.
0: Yes, Yes. And, um, you, the device that you've been using is about the size of a microscope slide, you were saying, and it looked like one side of it is clear so that you can actually use it for visualization of cells or antibodies on the slide. Yes. And hence the pretty pictures. <laughs> uh, it, is there a, a practical use to that now? I mean, do you imagine that that's a capability that becomes useful with the patient samples, or is that purely for developing the technology?
1: So right now it's- Part of why we've kept that there is that some of the exosome-based assays are thinking about having an imaging-based approach for a readout Mm -hmm. because it is fast and cheap that you could get an overall bulk fluorescence and to say whether something is high or low for a specific tumor signature.
0: So you would take the captured exosomes and then you'd put another antibody over and stain them, I see. Yes, Yes. and so
1: that could be a a fast, inexpensive readout relative to doing some RNA-based or proteomics-based analysis. Yes. Um, We're not sure if that's really where, I mean, right now it's not our focus, but it is always a great check to make sure that our approach is working.
0: Right. In the uh, manuscript, you go through uh, a lot of optimization that you did um, for the flow rate, the mm-hmm. linker length, um, and you profile the exosomes that you're capturing to show that you're getting a full range and it's mm-hmm. not a specific type. Yes. And um, and you use a no, is it a herringbone technology to get the vortex in the fluid so that the fluid becomes or the exosomes become contacting with the antibody is that correct yeah Yeah,
1: that that was a great job nick Um, so (laughs) we use a. if you if you think about a traditional microfluidic device or a, a device that has a very small opening that you're flowing fluid through if i were to get technical, you're in Stokes flow, which is the the Reynolds regime.
0: Uh I have no idea what that is. And
1: most people don't. I just say it to sound smart. (laughs) Um, But but what happens when you're in that flow pattern is that if you're a cell or a small particle and you're traveling through, you sit like in one traffic lane and you just go straight through the device. Uh Uh You don't diffuse to the surface. You don't interact with any of your neighbors. And that flow is not helpful for us to pull out these vesicles. And so by putting in these grooves or herring bones in the surface, it creates what we refer to as anisotropic flow, or this chaotic flow, so that rather than sitting in your traffic lane and going straight through, you're pulled off into this vortex ah, and yeah. it spins you up and down and it brings you into contact with the yes. surface. Yes. And so now we have all of our neighbors interacting, we're interacting with our antibodies right. and that actually, um, when you compare with a traditional channel without the herring bones, it increases our ability to capture these particles
0: by 50%. Yes, yes, and that's the real magic behind the device. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you say that you uh, quantify your uh, capture efficiency somewhere near the end of this optimization. And Mm it was 58 percent. Is that the number? Yes. Yes. So you go from 10 percent to 58 percent. Yes. Yes. And
1: so so we're pleased with that. And I think because of the abundance of vesicles that you have, we don't need to have the high-level bar that we have for circulating tumor cells, because there's enough of them that if we sample out that population, and for us, it's really the enrichment overall of that background that's most important.
0: Right, right. So even an engineer is satisfied with 58 percent.
1: And when I worked briefly in industry, they told me, you know, you have to be able to move forward at 51 percent. You can't over-engineer things.
0: (laughs) So the device works, and then the the it was certainly in your model system, and then the issue then is to show it works in a biologically relevant system, right? So this is where we turn to Brian. Yes. um, So what did you do? What was the system you wanted to apply it to?
2: Well, so we're we're quite interested in in patients with glioblastoma, and this stems back from early on um, the the work that you know our, our lab and Shannon and everyone had been putting forth. If you're gonna focus on a tumor, you might as well focus on the most aggressive one, Yes. Uh, particularly in, in brains. And again, a lot of this is from the early naivete of sort of saying, we think it's in the blood, no one's shown it's in the blood. Why don't we take sort of the worst case scenario and, right. and the most likely scenario of there to be some disruption with the blood brain barrier, blood tumor barrier. Um, and it just made a lot of sense to start looking for that. Yes,
0: so t- tell us what you did what was the experiment that you did to test the device
2: so you know looking at patients with glioblastoma again mm. trying to pull out from blood whole blood yeah. and again let me th- this is such a departure from what's ever been done with in terms of traditionally you're scanned with an maybe we could spend a couple seconds mm. typically you're diagnosed with a glioblastoma using an mri and then ultimately not through until surgery do you get that information or that diagnosis yes and it's really a surgical procedure that can give you that and any ability to detect whether somebody's um, responding or failing therapy is based off an mri again and, and that leads to a lot of doubt right and that doubt um, is largely because after you've had surgery after you've had chemotherapy after you've had radiation the mri's just don't look right. they're not as easy to interpret and so is
0: that in part because the glioblastoma is very invasive and so it's difficult to define margins? Yeah,
2: it's a, it's a great question. So I, I would say it's a combination of both. It's it's uh, Before an operation, it's very invasive and, and you can see the delineation of that normal tissue from abnormal tissue. After surgery, the, between the scar, the chemo, the radiation, yeah. there's a question as to what, what you're looking at and is that more a reflection of what we usually call treatment effect or some type of... Uh, reaction to chemotherapy or radiation therapy, or is it the tumor coming back? Um, add to that the layer that when these come back, they tend to come back at the margins. Yes. And so all of a sudden you're in a very, very tricky position. Mm-hmm. Um, and that tricky position basically leaves you in to, as a clinician to try to make decisions yes. without not the most obvious data. Yeah. And these are large decisions, decisions of do I continue the therapy, do I not? Um, Am I failing, or am I not, or am I right. doing okay? Right. And, and should I go right. sur- under further surgery, or should I go under, you know, chemo radiation? Yes. And this is something where the field has often, and for a long time, not been able to answer appropriately. And what's so crucial about this is we decide whether or not somebody or a clinical trial drug is actually working based on a lot of this data that is not really great. So something like vesicles um, or exosomes, circulating tumor cells, uh, anything that you can get and extract from the blood and and be able to pull that information would be so very helpful. Yes,
0: yes, Uh, understand the importance. Um, So uh, with that background then, um, and a device that you thought worked, um, you needed to do a test to see whether it would actually work with patient uh, fluids and and, uh, could it detect Uh, cells with mutations. And so, uh, as I remember it, you show a comparison in in the paper of, I think, six normal patients versus six uh, glioma patients. Have I remembered that correctly? Yes, you, do, you're,
1: yes, you are 100% correct. Um, we wanted to make sure that we truly were getting that enrichment of tumor vesicles. And so the first mutation that we looked for was the EGFRV3 mutation. Mm-hmm. So this was something that folks had shown that they could pull out of glioblastoma patients using other technologies. So we had to show were able and capable to to do the same thing I see. that other technologies could do. Yes. And then we wanted to take it to the next level. Yes. And so first we showed we have the sensitivity and specificity to pick up the EGFR mutation. But in addition to picking up that mutation, showing that our background of message from other right. vesicles was very low right. compared to other approaches. Right. And then once we had done that and can had the evidence that these are coming from the tumors, we then were able to take the RNA that was inside and then do next generation sequencing and start profiling these tumors from the vesicles in a deeper way.
0: Yes, and that's an amazing concept, isn't it? That you're using then the vesicles as a way to selectively purify the RNA that was produced by the tumor cells out of the blood.
1: Correct, Uh, yes. uh, And, And it was really exciting for us because but the first time when we got the sequencing data back, we weren't really sure what we were going to find because a lot of the previous data, um, when they were looking at the RNA, and again, looking at bulk isolation, there was just a lot of immune and, and inflammation signatures yes. that were coming back, not things that were specific to brain tumors. And so when we got the first panel back and we started matching it against all of the RNA that were known to be in gliomas, and we were seeing this great concordance, yes it was really exciting, and then for Brian and I to start thinking about, okay, what what are the real applications we can start applying this technology to? Uh,
2: Again, I mean, I can't uh, overstate how amazing of a uh, finding this is to be able to, for once, be able to identify a lot of the signatures you want to know about a patient, and again, it's not the you don't need surgery, and and it's just this remarkable ability to use the blood in a very sort of natural, minimally invasive way um, that won't affect patients and can be done with just a simple blood test. It it just all of a sudden opened up a door to a whole world of opportunity.
0: That's a wonderful summary. So uh, (laughs) let's stop there, and we'll be back in a few minutes, and we'll talk about that new door, the new world that you've opened up and what you're going to do next. Shannon, Brian, thank you very much. Thanks. Join us for episode 49 where Shannon and Brian will be back to help us understand the implications of their discoveries and where their team will go to from here.